We are back for another Codex Cantina episode, which is just two guys talking literature, trying to make sense of it. Now, we spend a lot of time pushing ourselves, trying to understand this literature, organizing it, and then bringing it to a conversational approach for how we deliver it. And we've absolutely put more money in it than we've gotten out of it. So if you guys are considering supporting this channel, we'd appreciate you checking out our Patreon link at patreon.com slash the Codex Cantina, as well as Ko-Fi of ko-fi.com slash the Codex Cantina. It all helps us in running the show, along with commercials, guys. So thank you so much. We're going to do a quick commercial break, and then we'll get on with the rest of the episode. All of Kurt's writing and all his machines couldn't stop J.K. Rowling from stealing his scenes. Ooh, <laughs> oh, that's checkmate right there, J.K. <laughs> all the King's Horses by Kurt Vonnegut. Coming up for a discussion today, welcome to the Codex Cantina, where I am Una. I thought it was all the king's men. I thought it was all the king's horses. I'm wrong, it's all the king's horses. I was reading the poem, the nursery yeah. rhyme today, all the king's horses, all the king's men. Mm-hmm. No, you're right, you're right, my bad. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Join us and our patrons who support us along the way in the literature journey by hitting that subscribe button down below right now. Guys... I love you. We read the same story, I promise. I promise. (laughs) And as always, we start off publication information. All the King's Horses book was published in 1968 in the Welcome to the Monkey House collection, but it was probably written around 1951 or earlier. Now, obviously, this is our 14th Kurt Vonnegut video. If you're down for Kurt, I'm sure you've checked out some of our other videos. If not, make sure you check out that playlist that we're going to leave below. But Kurt is one of my favorite writers. There's just something about the way that he just takes this generation that's no longer here a post-war generation and not only that you know we've seen his writings from from world war ii like years later right with slaughterhouse five but now we're going to enter into his cold war years right like what a unique time for these writers and people to have been alive and really gone through such dramatic changes to be able to express them in literature And not only that, they're able to encapsulate real world events into how politics were playing out on a global scale like never seen before. The emergence of superpowers, the emergence of computing processing powers, and some of the, you know, fictional stuff and some of the scary things that they were writing about were coming to fruition. It must have been a golden age for some of these fantasy writers in the early 50s into the late 60s. All right. So what we do around here is a quick plot recap to make sure we're all on the same page. And then we jump into the discussion and analysis after that. So for plot, an American military plane is blown off course and crash lands somewhere in Asia. (laughs) 16 people survived the plane crash, U.S. Army Colonel Brian Kelly and his family, and several enlisted troops. The prisoners are held captive by the communist leader Pai Ying with the Russian leader Barzov overseeing it. They are challenged to play a game of chess, but instead of pieces... Uh, he's got to use his own family and men as as the units. And as his people are captured, they will be executed in real life. If Kelly wins, the survivors will be freed. Pai Ying takes pleasure in exchanging pieces, which torments Kelly to lose his men. However, Kelly sees a chance at winning, but must sacrifice his own son's life to do so. Ooh. However, when Ying's untimely demise happens, Barzov the Russian takes over and and loses the position anyways as it was a losing spot. 
He spares the rest of the people's lives since the USS and USSR, did I say USS? The USA and USSR, ooh, that's a tongue twister, were not officially <laughs> at war yet. More on that to come from our history teacher here. <laughs> Barzov suggests a rematch with no lives at stake. Kelly declines but says, well, I'll, I'll, I'll do it later if you insist. <laughs> and plot. <laughs> I love how this is so encapsulative of so much history and a little bit of our fears of the choices we make have real world consequences. And I think that is my interpretation of what Vonnegut was kind of playing with here. No pun intended. So why call this all the king's horses? I think it's very easy to see the parallel with Humpty Dumpty with all the king's horses and all the king's men. And I think both stories kind of talk about Men being sent to a futile task. The idea is you can't put an egg together once it breaks, right? You can send all the men you want in the world at it, and, and it's just a futile task. Nothing's going to happen. And I think that's kind of how Kurt viewed war as well. You can send these men out to die, but what does it accomplish? Is kind of one of the themes that he plays with a lot. And that's about it for why I think he called it this, because there weren't a ton of nuggets. I think this is earlier on in Kurt's writing. But I, I wouldn't say there's a ton of hidden meanings, but we do need to talk about this Cold War peace crypto go i'm gonna unleash you just go at it have at it what's what's the cold war stuff we need to know buddy okay oh i gotta go back though first real quick because i've been thinking about this and i've read the story twice now trying to find some nuggets and for all the king's horses why didn't he call it all the king's men and i think there is kind of something there that he was playing on this idea that men are not able to fix our own problems sometimes. And, and I don't mean men, men, but people in general. Why call it all the king's horses and not all the king's men? I don't know. I think there is something there, but I'm probably not smart enough to figure it out. And the other thing I was well, looking up a little bit of the history of the Humpty Dumpty rhyme, and it there is a possibility, there are some historical theories and using our historical imagination a little bit, that possibly it could go back to some battles that happened in England back in 1368 of moving the Humpty Dumpty cannon after it fell and broke, which is kind of maybe an homage to war as well. Uh, although the modern nursery rhyme is very, very different with, you know, the, the egg cracking and not being able to put the, the the living egg back together again. But I don't know. I think, I think there is some fun stuff there if you use your very far out imagination. Yeah, those are good points. And I wonder if you didn't choose men because none of these men were really autonomous in this. Like they were kind of told what to do. Like horses are told what to do by people in power. And that's kind of a little bit of the structure of the story, too. And that's the structure of the Cold War, right? So time to unleash the Cold War, post-World War II. The Cold War is, I think, misnamed by some historians at the time. Many historians nowadays agree that this is more kind of a lukewarm war. And the reason that is is... <laughs> <laughs> and the reason that is, is because the United States and the USSR were fighting through proxies. And that's exactly what happens in this story. The United States and the USSR couldn't fight directly because we both had atomic weapons and we could blow each other up many times over. And instead, we fought using others. And in the first case was the Korean War, 1950 to 1953. The United States is going versus China, communism, and the USSR, communism. But again, can't fight each other, so we use the North Koreans and the, the South Koreans. And then later, that'll happen the same thing in Vietnam, and then we'll see it in Afghanistan, we'll see it in uh, Cuba. We just we see it over and over and over again, where these power vacuums seem to happen and occur, just like we see in the story. Someone gets injured, new player comes in, power vacuum, there's this eternal struggle back and forth. 
And, you know, historians kind of agree that this idea of the chessboard, or at least I think most historians agree that this idea of the chessboard of battling of wits was something that the U.S. and the USSR were doing. And and it was more than just fighting. It was an ideology. It was a battle of ideology, a battle of wits, because they couldn't fight each other directly. And we see that in this story. And it was a battle of fear, too, right? Paranoia was a widespread feeling. And you can kind of even see that in the beginning where the corporal says things like, I just like to know what's going on is all. And you see how the characters like, they give up their power, they give up their autonomy very quickly, right? When the war, the war, when the chess game starts, <laughs> you know, and, he, and, and Kelly starts putting the men on the board, they're like, where do I go? And then they're like, okay, well, you're the bishop. He's like, okay, I'm a bishop. I move diagonally. Like they immediately give up almost like autonomy or self self power empowerment i guess in a sense for the sake of letting go of fear in a sense of just going along with the war machine and you know kurt if you didn't know slaughterhouse five one of the uh, subtexts of that was the children's crusade the idea that we're sending our children to war and you can even see that a little bit with margaret like who can't believe that we're sending her twin boys into this war at this point in time because it's what we had to do. It's what we use with these men. So you can kind of see a little mixing of like that war concept too, of fear and using others to fight the war in the same way that you were just kind of talking about as well. I think you, the, you hit the nail on the head with giving up some of your own freedoms or your autonomy. And when North Korea and, and China is invading into South Korea, South Korea has to give up a little bit of themselves and become a little bit more Americanized and say, all right, we don't want to be communist. We'll, we'll be democratic and kind of be your buddies if you come in and help us. But they had to give something up for that. And even today, uh, North Korea is number four, I believe. Um, the last time I checked a couple of years ago when I was teaching geography and U.S. history, Korea, South Korea is number four trade partner for Asia for us. Uh, they might be number three, China, Japan, and then Korea is probably right there, uh, you know, third or fourth. So they, they did give something up in order to, for us to come in there. So we did see that in real life. And the same thing happens in Cuba. The same thing happens in Vietnam over and over again across the globe as the United States went into places and USSR went into places. Um, they didn't take over, but they said, hey, if you want our help or be our friends, then you're going to have to, you know, kind of play ball with us. Let's talk a little bit more about the characters in the story in this one, because there are some pretty powerful lines, I thought, in here in terms of when they're talking about sacrifices and stuff. But one that I thought was really good that kind of showed how Kelly was transitioning from being this guy that walks in. If you remember, he saw each of the men in the cage in the beginning, right? Like he, there's that scene where he's talking about taking the cigar and it lights up the, the Colonel's face and then he takes the cigar and it lights up his child's face. And like, he's, he sees each of these men as people and he's nervous going into this. And then we get hit with this quote. Now he recognizes the eerie calm, an old wartime friend that left only the cold machinery of his wits and senses alive. It was the narcotic of generalship. It was the essence of war. And I think here's where we start to see how he starts to become more automated. This is the bishop. It moves this way. He stops even seeing his friends, right? In order to win, it's that old, uh, I guess, war stereotype. I mean, war is kind of built on a game of, of wins and losses. It kind of forces you to become a utilitarian is, is one way to view this. And the idea is that the, the loss of one is good if it's for the greater of many, right? The idea is we're trying to maximize as many. Well, there's a lot of different ways to be utilitarianism. But here we're trying to maximize 
the win, right, for, for our team. So if we get to that point where he sacrifices his son, someone who means everything to him, like, like who could mean more than your own family members to you, whether it be your wife or your kids? But Kelly will sacrifice that because he transitions with that war mentality of utilitarianism to say that the sacrifice of one, you're going to do the Spock quote for me, aren't you? <laughs> no, I, I don't know Star Trek that well. <laughs> no, no, no. Star, the needs Star. of the many outweigh the needs of the few along those lines. So Kelly accepts that, sacrifices his own son, who probably means the world to him, to save all the other men on the co- on the court on the on the playing field on on the board I don't <laughs> on the board yeah mm-hmm. i i would i would like to say though and i know that there is the same idea that you presented and i know that there is the argument the idea that kurt was writing stereotypes at the time of men were cold and calculated and the the mom here is the one that's more emotional when her son dies and i i think that you can view it that way and i i do agree to a sense that that probably is a possibility of how was kurt was writing it but i would i would challenge a little bit that i think that Kelly's evolving during this and he does see that he's going to have to make sacrifices for the greater good And I don't think that it's so cold and calculated that he just turns emotions off. I think that he he evolves to the point of this is the best for everybody. And because even in the story, and it says, kill me, shouted Kelly, starting off his square after them. A half a dozen bayonets hemmed him in. He he is very emotional. He is very upset that people are dying. And I think it crushes him inside. But I think it's that idea of leadership that it, to be a good leader, you have to make those choices and sacrifices and not mm-hmm. let people see it affect you when you're a president or a general or you're a leader on a battlefield. You can't show that emotion to hold up the the esteem or to keep the morale of your men alive. Kelly couldn't do that even while people around him are dying and sacrificing his own son. Right. And they can't take back the moves, right? The people, in theory, except for the son at that point, had been executed as they had been played, right? And it's that idea of pot committed. Once you've lost a few, you've got you've to make it worth it. Like, you got to keep going to make sure that, you know, you do win the war and that their sacrifice wasn't for nothing. And you have the quotes like, since so much blood has been shed in this game, it would be a pitiful waste to leave it unresolved. Which speaks to, but not only utilitarianism, but also pot committed to, I think, to your point about how they've got to make this worth it and they've got to push on for the greater good because you can't go back. And they talk about it in there, the quote that the illusion of the game and that they became human beings again. And I think you see that and Kurt is kind of almost writing a little bit about, at my view, that this idea of that they were faceless when these young boys went off to war, when the president and the generals were sending them off to die that they are real human beings when they return back to war, broken, PTSD, you know, maimed, lost an eye, lost a leg, that it does come into clarity when you see this thing firsthand. Because a lot of times when young men are sent off to wars, to Korea, to Vietnam, to Cuba, to to wherever, they're not seen again. And that's probably pretty daunting on a leader. That's a lot of weight and guilt to bear. So very sad, but also very poignant and very clearly written. Now, we didn't talk on it since that opening joke, but obviously clearly written enough that maybe some millionaire came along and, well, I guess she wasn't a millionaire at the time, but this ended up as being the pivotal emotional scene in Harry Potter. Like, I don't think they've ever quoted Kurt Vonnegut as a source. Who knows if she actually read it, but it's 
literally oh, the on, idea of sacrificing this person that means everything for winning the game. It's literally that scene in Harry Potter. So I don't know. Exactly. Very fun story. We're going to, again, leave our playlist link down below if you want to check out more Kurt Vonnegut talks because we love talking about Kurt stories because they're so much fun and very clean, very easy to read and emotional. Let's move into our subjective wrap-up and ratings, which mean nothing. Crypto, what are you going to give this one? I think I'm going to go a little bit higher on this one than I maybe normally would for its intrinsic, teachable moments and its value inside of a classroom. I'm going to go an eight. I think that there's a lot of irony here that could be taught about the Americans and the prisoners and the Russians and the Chinese. I think that it's a great way to show how somebody can despise war and use something that has nothing really to do with war chess where it's all mental battles there's no physical violence and then take physical violence and shove it in there and take something that is so intellectual and make it so violent and brutal i love that how he's done that um i'm, I'm yeah eight eight point five somewhere around in there i definitely think this is one that can be used in a classroom and if you just enjoy kurt vonnegut i think you're gonna enjoy it as well i'm gonna give this one a nine nice clean easy fun very emotional and heartfelt and a fun little teachable fact about going back into, you know, historical conflict. Very good story. Guys, we'd love for you to join us by hitting that subscribe button below. We thank all of our patrons for the support and love that they give. Give them some love as well too, folks. You know, check out their channels. We post videos every Monday and Thursday. We'd love to see you on the journey. Una out. Peace.